You know, we're continuing. Uh, my name's Steve Coleman. I'm a member of the teaching team here, and we're continuing in our series on Galatians. Uh, this is the fourth message, if my count's right. I know the next message, next week, will be the last one. We're going to conclude the book in chapter 6 there. Um, you know, in the earlier chapters, Paul's identified the root of erroneous teaching to a group of churches uh, in the province of Galatia. The teachers there were saying that belief and adding to that belief by doing some good things or taking some good actions was required for salvation. Of course, salvation is something God provides to everyone who believes. And Steve, in his song set early on, uh, talked about John 3.16. Whosoever believeth on him, that's Jesus as the Messiah, shall not perish but have everlasting life. That same book of John, that by believing Jesus is the Messiah, you may have life in his name. Well, last week in chapter 3, Julie and I team taught, and we we went through a number of arguments that Paul had where he uh, explained the law and its relationship to the promise and its relationship to Christ's coming and how it fit in the overall plan of God. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, going into chapter 4, through chapter 4, and into chapter 5. We're going to talk about uh, of a few additional things. But uh, these are the arguments that we sort of teased out of the text in chapter 3 last week. Uh, Paul's telling the Galatian churches, remember your salvation was a work of the Spirit. Another one was that Abraham was saved by faith. That was a very important point to establish because that promise God made to Abraham is is the one that is still uh, in force. Christ's coming was in uh, in fulfillment of that. The law did not change the promise. The law was introduced later, did not change the promise. And argument for the law was given to prepare Israel for the Messiah. Well, today we're going to talk about Uh, a few things that Paul brings in. Uh, He's made his primary arguments there in chapter 3, but now he's going to talk about the significance of our identity in Christ. He's going to talk about what has changed because of Christ. And then finally, uh, we're going to close on the implications of being free. So we're going to look at identity in Christ, what's changed, and the implications of being free. So to get a running start this morning, we're just going to read through the um, end of chapter 3, sort of where we left off last time. It's important with Paul because sometimes his stuff is hard to decipher. We're finding that in Ephesians in our study, uh, Bible study at 10 o'clock. Paul, and so probably the most important words you'll hear this morning are the ones right from the text. So let's read it. Uh, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the written law has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So his, his point 
there to sort of sum up was the law was created by God to achieve a purpose. It was not designed to give new life. It was not designed to be the answer to the question posed in Genesis 3. Oops, what happens after the fall? And concludes in, in Revelation where God creates a new heaven and new earth. Uh, the law was not the answer to that question. It was a period of time during the Old Testament, and it had its purpose. The coming of Jesus and his sacrifice signaled the end of the law. It changed everything because he fulfilled the law, and then when he died, he died, took our sin on him. He was dying in our place. He had fulfilled the law. Uh, The Jews before that hadn't. The Gentiles before that hadn't known God except for individuals. God always has his people. But they were believing according to the promise, not through the law. And we we built a timeline last time, if you remember. All the way over in that corner, we had Genesis, and a few feet beyond that was Abraham, to whom was given the promise. Abraham got the promise that all nations would be blessed through him. Back at the very beginning in Genesis, in the garden, in chapter 3, God says that... The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The first promise of the promise that was built up through Abraham. And right at the corner of the stage there was the time of Moses. And God gave the law. And we talked about it. He gave the law to, demonstrate, to reveal to Israel the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God. And the fact that they could not keep the law so they were eternally separated. They, just a gulf between their performance and what was required under the holiness of God. And it also hinted, it suggested, it gave pictures of the fact that the innocent needed to die to atone for the sins of the guilty. And in many places, over and over, in hindsight, with 2020 vision, clear as a bell, the, the, the uh, prophecy of Christ and his coming. Okay, so moving on to the significance of our identity in Christ. Uh, the last couple of verses there in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, he continues, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We were given Christ's righteousness through his sacrifice. And if Paul's made anything clear, he's made that clear through Galatians. He calls it here being baptized into Christ. We had a discussion about this in our Sunday school class before. Uh, Baptism was a common word used prior to uh, New Testament times. And it, it basically meant immersing, immersing something in something else, to baptize. Uh, and it's used in the New Testament in, in a couple of ways. Uh, one way metaphorically here to talk about uh, the sort of spiritual baptism or the spiritual identification that, that we have through Christ. And that's what this is talking about, being baptized into Christ. 
we become one with Christ uh, because of his death on the cross, our receiving his righteousness. There's also the, um, the process or the ceremony, one of the um, ordinances of the church is baptism. And what baptism does, water baptism, is it's a picture to us of identification with Christ. It says in the Bible that we're buried with him by baptism into death so that we're raised up to walk in newness of life. So when somebody goes through that process of baptism, they're identifying with Christ. They're, they're saying, I'm dead to self. That, that part of me, uh, that, uh, that sin was carried by cross, Christ on the cross, and now coming back out of the water, I'm raised with this new heart, uh, new life in Christ, and, uh, and, and that's the path that I'm being set on. You know, people sometimes put on clothing. He says, uh, baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself in Christ. People put on clothing in order to identify as a group. Because of distinctive clothing, any member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is recognized worldwide. Uniforms are a classic feature of sports teams. And it seems as though people wanted to identify as a group for lots of reasons. I'm particularly looking forward, though, this morning to introducing you to the all-girl team from the under-six division of the T-Ball League in Edmond, Oklahoma. (laughs) These four- and five-year-olds identify with Elsa, the character from the movie Frozen. Their team is called... The Freeze. These girls love Elsa. They wear her uniform proudly and in a very intimidating way. Well, we're identified with Christ just like the team who wears a uniform. Of course, this is only an illustration. Our identification with Christ runs deeper than just an external cover. Uh, As Paul says earlier in the book, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Uh, We have been radically transformed. We're different down to the core from what we were before. Paul says our identification just subsumes all other distinctions. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're from some other nation. Syria, Turkey, France, Mexican, if you're Inuit or Canadian. Those differences are swallowed up by our oneness in Christ. As far as gender distinctions, there's no male or female. Paul's saying they're less important than the commonalities we share as the adopted children of God. An interesting uh, interesting fact when you take a look at the four passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts and the work in the body and and how each member does its job, and, and, and it, it gives you this list of, the, of you know, gifts that, that God's giving out. So to one person, the gift of encouragement, to another person, the gift of teaching, to another person, the gift of, of uh, hospitality. Um, there is never, in any of those four mentions, uh, any of those four passages, the mention of gender. It doesn't come up. 
uh, it's a non-issue. Gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to the church. God wants every person in his church to be operating with the gift, with his empowerment, with the gift that he's given in the context of a local body of Christians. You know, the third example that Paul mentions there, there's no Jew nor Greek, uh, there's no male or female, there's no uh, slave or free person. You know, a person in slavery, they can never get what they want. They just get given stuff. They can never do what they want. Every minute of their lives belongs to the master. And they can never control how they'll be treated. Poor treatment, decent treatment, it's, it's out of their hands. They are mere property. And by contrast, when you think about the free person, and if you want to add to that, that sort of the rich and free, well, they can purchase whatever they want. You know, a diamond, a plane, an island. Uh, money gives them the opportunity to decide how to spend every minute of their lives. Lots of discretion there. Full freedom. Money can also buy first-class treatment and friendly service. But no matter the background or social position, the issue of new life in Christ completely supersedes the importance of any of the lines that we draw in society. You know, one of the things, uh, one of the small things I remember from junior high school, there's a lot of memorable things, bad and good, but one of the things I remember early on arriving there, our junior high school or middle school, was fed by a number of elementary schools. So I'd have to answer the question frequently, what elementary school are you from? That made a difference. I don't know why, so it must be because we were the bottom of the totem pole because I, I wasn't aware of how this fit into things, but the question was asked. And you know something? In the years since college, in all my jobs, I've never once had to answer that question. <laughs> and, and why is that? Because it's irrelevant. What elementary school I went to has no interest for the people because... They're, the commonalities they're thinking about, you know, how well are you doing getting your product out or how, how effective are you being or are you a jerk or a nice person, all those things are way more important to my coworkers than what elementary school I came from. No longer significant. Well, chapter 4 goes on to present two pictures that speak about what's on the other side of faith in Christ. You remember on this timeline we had and the, the path of the promise down here, the stage was the law. And we had here, Christ came. And Christ came in fulfillment of the promise. Uh, those who were under law, the Jews, uh, it set them up to know there's no other way they can get to God except through uh, atonement. And here was Christ, the atoning sacrifice. So at, at this point in the process, Paul is trying to answer the question for the Galatians, okay, well, what about the law now? He's already said, it doesn't matter what nation you're from. If you're a Jew and you came to Christ through the law and here, that's fine. But, you know, any other nation that you're from, you're just coming straight here to the foot of the cross. So he's established that in chapter 3 very clearly. Well, uh, what's on the other side of faith in Christ? 
how do we understand the law from that perspective? And first, he uses the picture of a young child, of a wealthy father, who's under the care of guardians and trustees until that child comes of age. Then that budding man or woman comes into their full legal standing, enjoying the benefits and shouldering the responsibilities and the position as an heir. So also, he writes, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental principles of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as children. Because you're his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave or under guardians, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So Paul is saying, when we believe in Christ, get salvation, from this point on, we're a son and heir. We're not like the minor who's due one day to step in his, his or her father's footsteps, uh, inherit money, uh, take on responsibility his business. But when they grow up, they are. And Paul's saying, at the cross, from this point forward, it's like, now you're not a minor anymore. You are a full legal heir. And the word he uses for adoption is the one that was commonly used in Roman culture for this legal process of adoption. Secondly, we have the account of Hagar and Ishmael. And you remember that story. That story. That's, um, uh, this is back in Abraham's time. And what Paul says, well, let me tell you the story first, remind you of it. You know, waiting for the promise of God for the child that was to come, uh, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Sarah in particular, got a little antsy that it wasn't happening. Very concerned. So, in line with customs of the day, she said, I need you to produce an heir through my uh, servant, my handmaiden. It was their form of surrogate uh, uh, birth, pregnancy and birth. And so that's what they did. And that was Hagar. Hagar was an Egyptian woman that, um, that uh, they, had, they had gotten along the way. And uh, she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Well... God later had Sarah get pregnant. Miracle. The miracle baby. And she had Isaac, the son of the promise. Well, you know, the two boys and the two families couldn't live together. There were problems. Could go into details. They're not important to the story. The point was that ultimately, Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. And what Paul says then, based on that, is he says... Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Meaning the five books of Moses. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. That would be Hagar, slave woman, Sarah, the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, 
but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. And Paul says these things are being taken figuratively. I'm taking these and using them figuratively. The women represent two covenants. So what Paul's saying is, I'm, I'm using this story, I'm going to use it figuratively for you, but the woman, the slave woman, her son Ishmael, Hagar and Ishmael, they were uh, born through human effort. Uh, and he's likening that to the law. and Because he said all along, the law is... Uh, uh, well, we've, we've talked about the purpose of the law. And he said, born under that. Uh, and, and the free woman, Sarah, represents the path of the promise here. Uh, and he uses the fact that Isaac was the miracle baby. It was the one he promised and then years and years later delivered to an Abraham and a Sarah who were hovering around that centennial um, And so, he says, that was the child of promise. Hagar and Ishmael were, Ishmael was the child of the flesh, and ultimately that child of the flesh had to go. Because the divine promise is the one that that leads to everlasting life. So he's using that example to say, why do you want to go back to the law? It's not leading anywhere. It's, It's the same as being a free person saying, gee, I want to go back. And be, I'm going to go become a slave. Boy, that's the life. And so he's, he's appealing to their, their common sense that way. He applies the account and, and, and defines these two conditions. He calls uh, this one, the son of the slave woman, uh, the law, the flesh. And then he talks about, and the current city of Jerusalem. In other words, the current set of Jews that had rejected Christ, still living under the law, thinking that's going to please God. And that's what God wants. He, he calls the son here, the son of the promise. He, he talks about it coming under the spirit. And it's from the Jerusalem that is above. That is free. He concludes by saying that Galatians were not like Ishmael. But they were from the, the slave, uh, free woman, Sarah, and were free just like Isaac. And he sums up in the beginning of chapter 5, 5 verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, this brings up our third point. We've talked about the significance of our identity in Christ, how critical that oneness is. And and that alone, that concept alone means the law is not where it's at. We're over here now, and everybody comes to Christ that way. And we've talked about uh, uh, what has changed because of Christ. What's changed is, again, like an heir coming into uh, full maturity and with the benefits and the responsibilities of, of their title. And then he's talked about um, what's changed is you're, you're now on this promise track. You're Isaac. You're not Ishmael. So what are the implications of being free? If we're not subject to the law, then are we free to do whatever we want? Okay. Uh, interesting. So, it's sort of a yes, sort of. I mean, sort of. If I went and... Uh, let me pick one of the Ten Commandments. 
Although you know we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore. Or if we are, we're in deep trouble. We don't keep the Sabbath. Unless you do. do I, I don't. I don't. don't keep the Sabbath. It was yesterday. Um, but the um, Sabbath. Where was I going with that? Are we free to do anything we want? There's, if, if I went and committed, a, if I lied to somebody, what do I have to do to pay for that sin? There's no payment I give for that sin because that sin was paid for on the cross. So that's for a lie. What if I do something worse, murder or something like that? What judgment am I getting from God for that murder? There's no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 But, and, and this is what Paul's trying to wake the Galatians up to, but it makes no sense to do those things. It doesn't make any sense. It makes as much sense as if after this service, we all climb to the roof of the building and say, yeah, we're going to one by one jump off the top of the building onto the sidewalk. It's like, why would you do that? What's the purpose? It has no purpose to do those things. We'll just be feeding the flesh, that beast within us. Because one of the things we're free of is our slavery to ourselves. Our own slavery. We're free from self. He writes a little later in chapter 5. You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but don't use that freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, it's possible to use our freedom to feed the flesh. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't use that freedom, that tremendous gift of freedom uh, from that slavery that you were locked in until Christ made you free. Well, you know, he, one phrase, let me point this out before we go on. He says... The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Okay, well, the law's gone. We're not under the law. So, what law is he talking about? It's an interesting question. We're going to get a much fuller answer next week. But he talks about something in chapter 6, verse 2, called the law of Christ. And so we'll try to flesh that out more for you then fill it out but the but what he's saying in this section is um, that we're supposed to be focused that's what's supposed to come out of us rather than actions thoughts and actions connected to sin and and following our desires what's supposed to come out of us are things like serving one another humbly in love to love our neighbor as ourself. So we're going to finish off this week by talking about how we can do this command. Since we're free and we have that ability, we have that new heart. It sounds like such a simple command, 
But I generally have two problems with this command most times. Number one, I don't really like my neighbor that much. I mean, I like them. Hi. But to serve them, ah, come on, that's a lot to ask. But even if I did really, really like my neighbor, the bigger problem I have is me. My life is all about me. This is true whether I'm the kind of person that loves myself. Those, for those people, it's definitely all about them. But I've come to real, realize in my own life that the kind of person that tends to hate themselves, their focus is on them. When I hate myself, my focus is on me. So you, you sort of, it, life is all about us. We just make it that way. Well, how does this connect with the law? The law had an emphasis on what I did. The Old Testament law. What it did. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. If you don't do this, then you need to sacrifice. You need to do these things. Uh, and so because of that, there was a temptation within the law. This explains some of that slavery. That there was a temptation within the law to be much more concerned about myself and my standing than be concerned about others. Christ, in teaching, corrected the leaders of the day and told the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you remember, which is looking out for the other person. Loving your neighbor is God's concern, what yours, yours should be. Because this living is not about me. It's about a God that created. It's about a God that was spurned. We gave a cold shoulder to, we hated him, we certainly didn't obey. And, and a God who loved and gave all, gave all to us, just to reunite us, reunite us with him. How do we make the move from self-orientation to other orientation? God's not really expecting us to drum up enthusiasm for loving by gritting our teeth and straining real hard. I've tried that way, and it, it doesn't come out quite as service, doesn't come out as humble, and it doesn't really come out as love. But God has provided resources for us, and let me talk just briefly about four that I could think of. The first is, I have a God who loves me, and, and we all know what Paul's been talking about. God gave everything for us. Well, what does that do for us? One thing is that it gives us maybe one of the only examples of truly unconditional love that we see in our world. You know, Washington, D.C. is full of memorials, and we honor people, particularly people who have done extraordinary things. But one of the reasons I think we also build these memorials is because they're our heroes. They've done something that we think, man, that's really cool what they did. And we would love to emulate that. We'd love to be like our heroes. It stirs something in us and say, man, we would, I would be great to do that. And, you know, Jesus, among all the all the. All the Things that can be said to worship and honor him. He's certainly our hero in 
what he sacrificed, how he did it so nobly, uh, so unselfishly, so radically. He's our hero, and it stirs something in us. He is an example that motivates us, particularly in our new life in Christ, our new spiritual life. It makes us want to be like him. He's also a God who meets our needs. So God gives us his love, the arrow down. And what that love is, what it includes is, he gives us absolute acceptance. And he thinks we're important. We're not important. We're certainly no reason why we should be important to God. But he makes us important. He, he treats us, thinks of us as important. You know, Larry Krabs, a, um, a Christian psychologist and a professor, and uh, one of his observations uh, in, the, in the area of psychology and how we tick, he says, we are driven by two fundamental needs, the need for security and the need for significance. He sort of sees that a lot of the, the behaviors that we do are our quest to get one or both of those things. And that everybody needs both of them, sometimes in different proportions. Some people, man, security is really what I want. I want security. That's all I want. Hang on and be safe. And for other people, it's about being significant. I've made a mark. I can do things. And you know, God gives us both of those. The God of the universe says... You're mine, you're safe, and I accept you as you are, no matter what you do. My mercies are brand new every morning, new set of them. You can't, you can't make me disgusted with you. Absolutely secure. And we're absolutely significant. Called us his adopted sons. He sent his spirit. We read the verse in, our, in, our, in us that cries, Abba, Father. That's his spirit prompting that from us. He wants us, he wants that kind of closeness and relationship to us. So he has filled those psychological needs in us. Well, what, what that means, just from the human perspective, if our needs are full, now, now we don't have this desperate, uh, driving, crave, craving, craving, uh, actions to get those full, fulfilled. We're, we're looking to get significance out of people. Because, gee, if, if I'm better than that person, then that makes me a little more significant. But God has satisfied all those in us. He offers it to us. We need to acknowledge that and, and, and take it to heart. So, a fully satisfied person has something to give without re- expecting in return. If I have enough psychologically, then psychologically I can, I'm free to give to somebody else. It's not linked to this drive and desire we have. The third, third way, we have a God who wants to love through us. Paul talks about the love of Christ constraining me. And the idea is that God's love is for those others. 
And that's the love he's in Paul. Again, using another phrase. I think this is from King James because that's the Bible of my youth. But shed, shed abroad in our hearts. He shed his love abroad in our hearts. That's the love that God's flooded our hearts with. And so, and all he wants us to do is act as ambassadors. We're, we're the person there. And our job is simply to uh, communicate the things that back home in my, my country uh, that the leader of that country wants to tell the leader of this country. My job is to say that, pass it through. Uh, and that's, what, that's another resource that we have. We say, Christ, you can love this person. I'm just going to be there and, and make sure that they get your love. And then the fourth way is we have a God who transforms us. So we're being transformed. We are being radically changed. I wish it was more measurable, but it isn't. You pound through life and you trust the Lord. And he says this happens. And if you're in, in relationship with somebody, if you know people for a long time, they can see it. And they can give you that feedback. Every once in a while you get a glimpse and say, you know, I wouldn't have done that before. But I did it now. And so as we're transformed, we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. Well, what's he like? Well, he gives. He loves. He serves. So that's another resource we have. A little bit longer term, but it's a very powerful one as well. So we have a God that loves us. We have a God who meets our needs, God who loves through us, a God who transforms us. And all of those ways are ways that we can, that encourage us, that empower us, that give us what's needed to just be able to give some unconditional love away. And every time we express God's love to those around, God uses that to move His body, the church, to move it toward the day that He's able to present us to the Father without spot or wrinkle, it says. That's what God's about. You know, the highest award in our land is the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it's for people that just really rise above themselves and, and do something dramatic. If you ever read through the descriptions of the medals, there's a lot that have been given out. But you read through them, what you run across frequently is the citation that says, well, this person, you know, jumped on a hand grenade and as a result, the seven members of his pl- platoon lived. Uh, well, what happened is that person died. They, they smothered the explosion with their own body. And that's a remarkable thing for someone to do. Uh, as unselfish as you can imagine, as unconditional as you can imagine. No conditions on that. Hey, if I jump on this, you know. Uh, no, it's, it's just done. And um, it's a good example of the freedom that we have spiritually to just do and, and, and do what it takes. Because we're free, we can love others 
in a giving and not getting way, uh, like many of those soldiers do that earn, earn that. So uh, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you want to be a dear Father to us. It staggers us the more we think about what you've given for us and, and what you want to do, what your plans are. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to be part of that. Uh, in your name, amen.